This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Daniel Hahn. I'm delighted to welcome you here to an event with the wonderful Roddy Doyle, who's just here, he's standing behind me. Hey! I presume from that warm welcome that you already know who he is, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I'm going to pretend you don't know. About 10 years ago, Roddy was already a very distinguished playwright and screenwriter and, of course, an award-winning novelist with work including the Barrytown trilogy and Paddy Clark, Ha Ha Ha, which won him the Booker Prize in 1993. He obviously thought this wasn't enough and he had to be a children's writer too. So he wrote a book called The Giggler Treatment, which is a very, very funny book. And if you haven't read it, you must. Yeah, some of you, I can tell, have read this. It's a very, very funny book. Since then, he's written two sequels to that book. He's written a beautiful picture book called uh, Her Mother's Face, illustrated by Freya Blackwood, and a terrific novel called Wilderness. Roddy's going to talk to you about his children's books. He's going to read, I think, from, from at least one of them. And he's going to take questions. So think of lots of really good questions to ask him. But first of all, please join me in welcoming Roddy Doyle. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to say absolutely nothing unless you ask me questions. I have nothing to say. I'm not interested in anything, really. But if you ask me questions, I'll answer them. If you don't ask me questions, I'm going to stare at you, and you're going to stare at me <laughs> until half five when we're given permission to leave. The bell will go, and we can go. So. I can read a bit and then we can ask the questions or I can ask, answer a few questions and then read a bit. What, will I read first? Okay, now that's the first problem because I ran out of the house yesterday afternoon without a copy of the Giggler treatment. Does anybody have a copy I could borrow? Excellent, the Arsenal supporter, we meet again. So will you give me your copy of the Giggler treatment? And I'll give it back even though I, I like it. But I've read it before so I don't want to read it again. And does anybody have a watch with seconds on it? Any, anybody under the age of, do you have a, a watch with seconds on it? So can you time five minutes? And I'll read, just to, just to make sure that she gets plenty of exercise, I'm gonna read really, really fast <laughs> for five minutes. And at the very end of the five minutes, even if I'm in the middle of a sentence, you just shout out, shut up, okay? <laughs> but you're to really shout it out like you mean it, okay? All right? So, okay, but give me the five minutes. I know you're dying to shout, shut up now. But let me, let me read for five minutes first, okay? And I'm going to read out loud just in case you're a bit worried that I'm going to become a gross by myself. Okay, so are you ready? What's your name? Cameron. Okay, Cameron. So five minutes now, tell me to shut up, okay? Chapter one. Mr. Mack was walking to the train station. It was a nice sunny morning. The birds in the trees were singing their, their favorite songs, and the breeze that blew was full of breakfast smells, bacon, eggs, frogs' legs, and cabbage. Yum, said Mr. Mack to himself. Mr. Mack was feeling happy. Mr. Mack was feeling very happy. He had a nice lunch in his lunchbox and a surprise in his flask, and his children's goodbye kisses were still tickling his cheeks. He was going to work, and he liked his job. Actually, Mr. Mack loved his job. He was a biscuit tester in a biscuit factory. 
It was his job to make sure that the biscuits had the right amount of chocolate, if they were supposed to have chocolate. And, they measured, and he measured them to make sure that they were exactly square, if they were supposed to be square, or exactly round, if they were supposed to be round. Best of all, he tasted them. Not all of them. He tasted three in the morning and four in the afternoon to make sure that they tasted exactly right. He was looking forward to work because today he was going to be testing his favorite biscuits of all time, fig rolls. Yeah. <laughs> the factory made 365 types of biscuits, a different biscuit for every day of the year. Mr. Mack liked most of these biscuits and he loved some of them, but fig rolls always came top of his list. He loved their shape, he loved their smell, he loved their intelligence. They were such clever biscuits. They were delicious without needing any help from chocolate. And today was a fig roll testing day, so Mr. Mack was one happy man. But on his way to the station, just after he turned the corner, he saw a seagull sitting on the branch of a tree. Do you know what, mister, said the seagull. I hate fish. I didn't know seagulls could perch in trees, said Mr. Mack. He kept walking, but he looked back to have another look at the seagull. And this was a pity, because he didn't see the dog poo right in front of him on the footpath. Poor Mr. Mack. His shoe was heading straight for that poo. Chapter 2. So what? So what? Yeah, so what? People stand on dog poo all the time. Even dogs stand on dog poo now and again. But it was huge. It was a big pile of wet, fresh dog poo. Probably the, fre the biggest pile of poo in the world. Big dog, big poo, so what? I'm bored. I'm going to skip a few pages and see if there's any more about biscuits. Wait! Wait! The story isn't about biscuits, and it isn't about the poo. The story is about the people who put the poo on the path so that Mr. Mac would stand on it. The people who put it there. It was dog poo, so it came out of a dog, right? Right. So a dog stopped on the path outside the train station. He stayed there for a little while and left the poo before he ran away, right? Wrong. It was dog poo, but it wasn't a dog that put it there. And this story is about the little people who, put, who did put it there just 10 seconds before Mr. Mack turned the corner. Chapter 3. Four steps, three steps, two steps. Mr. Mack had, been, had seen enough of the seagull. He was going to turn around and plenty of time to see the poo, but the seagull spoke again. Fish, said the seagull. Don't talk to me about fish. Four steps, three steps, two steps, one. Mr. Mack's left foot was right over the dog stuff. The bottom of his shoe was exactly 16 and a half inches from the peak of the poo. And Mr. Mack thought he heard giggles. And he was right, he had heard giggles like these. Giggle, giggle, giggle. The poo was in the middle of the path. The path was beside a garden wall and the gigglers were on the other side of the wall hidden behind it. There were three of them. They were, they were all standing on the crossbar of a rusty old bike that had been leaning against the wall for more than 20 years. The bike was so old, it had, become part, it had almost become part of the wall. The gigglers had watched Mr. Mack as he got nearer to the poo. They'd counted the steps. How many? Four. How many now? Three. How many now? Two. They heard the seagull talking to Mr. Mack, and they ducked behind the wall as Mr. Mack walked right up to the poo. How many now? One. They waited. A chapter that isn't really a chapter because nothing really happens in it, but we call it chapter four. <laughs> nothing happens in this chapter, but some of the questions you're probably, that are probably hopping about in your heads get answered. Like this one. Why? Why what? Why did the gigglers put the poo on the path? Good question. They put it because 
They did it because, something, because of something Mr. Mack had done the night before. He was walking to the train station. But I'll tell you about it later, because these chapters where nothing happens get boring very quickly. Now, back to the story. Chapter 5, which should probably be called Chapter 4, but let's just call it Chapter 5. Back at the train station, the gigglers waited. They waited for the wallop, Mr. Mack hitting the poo. They waited for the squelch, Mr. Mack stepping down on the poo. They waited for the gasp. That was very polite, Cameron. <laughs> really, an Irish kid would have torn the face off me. <laughs> you know? So that was five minutes, was it? Grand. So those of you who don't know the book now have to buy it. That's my evil plan has worked. So there you go. Thanks very much. So now, any questions? I, we have to ask the Arsenal supporter gets first. Yep. And you get a microphone as well. How, why did you think of Rover? How did you think of it? How did I think of Rover? Um, quite a while ago, I was charging down to the train station near where I used to live in Dublin with my two sons who are now 19 and 17, but then were about nine and seven, or even younger actually, and their baby sister who's starting secondary school tomorrow, she was a baby. She was in the buggy. It was raining. I could hear the train coming. It was, you know, and I was charging to get to the train because I didn't want to hang around in the rain waiting for the next one. So I was running, and my two sons were on either side of me. One of them, I think he must have been five or six, and the other seven or eight. And uh, there was dog poo all over the path. There are people in the world who think that the earth is a place where their dogs can go to the toilet. You see them uh, it, after midnight. It's a strange underworld existence they have. You never see them during the day, but they come out after midnight with their dogs and disappear back in. So the, the, the path was full of dog poo, and I was trying to avoid it because I had the buggy and trying to get the wheels around it and down on the road, and I knew I was going to miss the train. And the thought struck me, what if somebody put that poo there just to annoy me? You know, so it had to be a dog. So that's where the idea for Rover... The, the big surprise, do you, have do, do you have a dog? Yeah. Well, probably a lot of you do have. We have two dogs at home at the moment, two lovely dogs. And I, kinda, I get up very early in the morning, and I'm sitting reading, having my coffee, and they're staring at me. And the big surprise is that they say nothing. It really does surprise me every morning that one of them doesn't say, what are you reading? Because <laughs> they don't say anything. And those of us who, you know, I had dogs when I was a kid and we've had, you know, a few dogs since then and the two at the moment, the big surprise is that dogs don't talk. Isn't it? It is. You half expect them to talk. There are animals who definitely, probably, when we're not looking, talk. And I suspect dogs might be like that. You know, it's never any great surprise when a dog talks in a film. Never really. Unless it was something about the Nazis or something, then it might be a bit of a shock. But, you know, the, uh, dogs... The, so it, it, to go from having a dog in the story to a dog that talks, it was kind of... A, it was almost... A, it wasn't even a decision, really. It just seemed very natural, if that makes sense. OK? Have I answered your question? Yeah. Great. Thanks. Somebody else now. What's your favourite book? What's my favourite book? Uh -huh. You mean one by me? Yeah. For children, I think The Giggler Treatment, because it was the first book I wrote. And for adults, a book called The Snapper, uh, because it was the second book I wrote. <laughs> and it was about a girl, who's a young woman who's having a baby. And uh, but it, it took a long time to write. And when I started it, I hadn't met the woman who became my wife. And by the time I'd finished it, she was having a baby. 
so it, I, I associate the book with happy memories and the giggler treatment really because uh, I didn't know if I could write a book for children. I was writing it for my own children and gradually it became a book. So that's, I think the giggler treatment would always be my favourite book for children. What was the last book that you wrote? For children? Yeah. A book called Wilderness about two boys who go on a, uh, a husky safari with their mother and end up having to rescue her. And I just finished another book. I'm going to read a little bit of it later. But it's about girls <laughs> and women. So you mightn't like it. But Wilderness is about two boys who rescue their mother and dogs that don't talk. Okay? What inspired you to write your books? What inspired me? Oh, reading. It's a bit like I remember when I was a kid watching football. You know, after the game was over, I'd get a football and run out the back garden and start kicking it around and pretending I was George Best, as it would have been when I was a kid, or, you know, the great footballers of the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, then when I was listening to music, you know, pretending. We didn't have tennis rackets in Ireland because tennis is banned. But we had, you know, hurling sticks and mad instruments of torture like that. But you'd pick up anything and pretend it was a guitar. And you can't really do that with writing. You look a bit of a twit pretending you have a typewriter, you know, as you're reading a book. But I always thought, I always, from the time, I was very, uh, I was about seven or eight before I could read. I didn't learn to read in school. I had a great, I loved school, primary school. I really liked primary school. But I didn't learn anything at first. And uh, there's, there were 54 children in my class in school. And uh, I think the definition of a good student was one who never said anything. So I was a brilliant student, because I, I sat at the back smiling. And my teacher, Miss Phillips, her name was, and she was really nice. And we kind of had a thing going on. And, but anyway, she, she died eventually. So by the time I was old enough to get married, she was dead and buried. So it never happened anyway. But, for a while there, when I was five and she was about 67, <laughs> it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was looking good. Anyway, it was my mother realized that uh, I wasn't learning while she was perfectly happy packing me lunch in the park, sending me off to school, that I wasn't learning how to read. So the great thing about that is that I remember learning to read. And a lot of people don't because they learn to read very early. But for whatever reason, I, I, I couldn't learn. So my mother taught me using comic books the dandy and the beano and the sparky. So I remember vividly learning how to read. And it took off. I remember the first time a word made sense. And brilliantly enough, it was in one of those speech bubbles that you get in comics, which is the perfect way to actually remember how to read, you know, those, bu those bubbles. So once I started reading, I think it's almost literally true that I've never gone anywhere without a book, you know? I much prefer getting the bus or the train than driving so I can read. I actually quite like missing the bus because I can hang around and read, waiting for the next one. If I'm going to meet anybody, I always have a book with me. I'm never annoyed if they're late unless I arrange to meet them on Monday and they turn up on Thursday because I've usually run out of anything to read by then. But, so I've always loved reading. So gradually then I, got, I started writing. But it was a love of reading. You know, I think you read something like Danny the Champion of the World by Roald Dahl. Wouldn't you love to write something like that? Something as brilliant as that. You know, and I think that's the urge. A bit like the urge to play football. I was no good. 
the urge to play a guitar, I couldn't. I can't sing. So it was, it was just actually to see out of curiosity whether I could write. So gradually I got into the habit of it and sat and gradually spent more and more time doing it and began to enjoy it really, you know. But, so that's, why I, that, that's what inspired me, reading all the books I've read all my life. Right up to today, you know, I'm reading a brilliant book at the moment, uh, a big, big novel called Skippy Dies by an Irish writer called Paul Murray. And really, it makes me itchy to go home and write. You know, it's great. So I read all the time, and that's really what inspired me to write. Okay? How long does it take you to write your books? Where did that question come from? <laughs> oh, I thought it might have been an angel somewhere. And it is, actually. How long did it take me to write the books? That's, actually, that's a hard question to answer because I don't know. Uh, the only one I know that took a very short amount of time was a book called Rover Saves Christmas. And I, read, I wrote that very quickly because I wanted to have some, a story to read to my children for Christmas. So I wrote that in a couple of weeks, very, very quickly. But what I do is I work all day. So I start work at about 9 o'clock in the morning and I stop at about 6. And I divide my day into different books, uh, something for adults and something for children. So I might work on a book for months that actually if I just sat and wrote it wouldn't take me that long. But some of the books take a long, long time. The last one, Wilderness, took me a couple of years because I started. And I did quite a bit and then realized it was no good, so I started again. And the one I'm just finished, it was the exact same thing. I started and actually got to the end and realized that it was bad and threw it in the bin and started all over again. Uh, so I know that one of the books I wrote for adults took six months and another, another one took five years. So it varies. Okay? How did you invent the gigglers? Beg your pardon? When, how did you invent the gigglers? How did I invent the gigglers? I actually don't remember too much about how I invented the gigglers. I decided that the gigglers were responsible for putting the poo. It seemed more interesting than just having it coming straight from the dog. <laughs> that Rover could be some sort of a businessman, you know? And Ireland badly needs businessmen at the moment, you know? So I hope there's lots of Rovers out there. But it just struck me as a, a funnier idea. Why I called them the gigglers, I don't remember. To be honest, I had no idea that somebody like yourself was going to ask me 12, or, uh, 12 years later. I had, so I don't remember why I called them the gigglers. But gradually, it's a bit like when I write, what you have to get down very quickly or in your head is some idea of what the characters are like. You know, not necessarily what they look like, that doesn't really interest me, but what they're like, you know, what their personalities are like. And the gigglers started off quite vague. They were just furry things. And then gradually they began to take on personalities, you know? And there were different sizes that had different personalities. But as to why I call them the gigglers, or why, what moment in my day it went, bang, I'll have these little furry things, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Sorry. What was your favorite book when you were little? I don't remember. My favorite book when I was little, I don't actually remember. Uh, I do remember one book. I had an uncle who worked in America. And about once or twice a year, he sent a, book, a, a, a box of books home to, uh, to us in Ireland. And there was one book called Benji. And I'm not sure it was any good. I still have it at home. Uh, it's the only book I have from when I was a child. And I haven't taken it down in ages. But it was a very funny book about a boy called Benji. 
and it was, I'm not sure if it was even written for children, strictly speaking, because his father was a TV, a television repairman, and he'd often take the back off the television when, his, when Benji's mother was given out to him. He'd make a sandwich, get a deck of cards, and climb into the back of the television and stay there <laughs> playing patience, you know? And it was full of mad stuff. But uh, that's the only book I remember reading when I was very small. I read all the Enid Blyton books, and I seem to rem I remember them, uh, and I enjoyed them. I read a whole load of books called The William Books by a woman called Richmond Crompton. And a lot of people in the room would have read all them as well. But um, I don't remember vividly loving one book more than any other book when I was, uh, when I was say, your age. I don't remember. It's a long, long time ago. Where do you write your books? I have an office in my house in the attic. So it's a, it's a nice room, and it's far away from the rest of the house. So uh, I hear interesting things through the skylight. I live near a police station, so I hear sirens. I live near a hospital, so I hear more sirens. I hear dogs barking. I hear uh, chickens these days. I don't know if it's become a thing in you know, the households of uh, Edinburgh, people keeping chickens. It's uh, the recession, people buy chickens and, because they can save a fortune by having one egg a day. <laughs> and it allows them to go on their holidays to New York by the savings they make. But so the chickens are a great noise. I hear dogs barking. And th these, are, these noises often end up on the page. So I have an office, which is really nice, in the attic. Uh, and uh, I go up there, and I stay up there, more or less. I come down now and again just to make a cup of coffee, or if I'm hungry, or hang out the washing or something. But basically, I stay up there uh, Mondays to Fridays. And uh, that's my work. And uh, I work on my own, but nobody. And my kids now and again come up, but uh, it's so far up that usually they're too lazy and they try to shout at me from downstairs, and I pretend I can't hear them. Um, when did you begin to write your books? Um, I think I began to write my books in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 1982, which is, what, 28 years ago? And the first children's book, I think I started about 11 or 12 years ago. I'm not sure. The book that became The Giggler Treatment. Just a chapter or two a day, and I'd read them to my children that night. Just, and it, it was only between me and them for a while, and then it became, uh, it became a bit more important, I suppose. Uh, not important, that's the wrong word. Less personal, somehow. That be, I began to think maybe it's a book, not just a story for my children. But the actual writing, the actual getting into the discipline of it and sitting every day for a while, even a half hour here, an hour there, goes back a long time to, you know, 1928, maybe 1980. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, 1982. During the World Cup, actually, 1982. How many books have you written? I'm glad to say that's a hard question. I have to always, I've written a lot. I've written five books for children, just finished the sixth one. And I think I've written 12 books for adults. I think. I kind of like not knowing. Uh, because, and I have two books coming out next year. So, uh, but I think it's 12. So 12 and 5 would be 17. Maybe 16. I'm not altogether sure. Do you write your books first and then add a title? Or do you do it 
the title before you write your books? That's a great question because I was talking about it earlier. I'm hopeless with titles. I really am no good with titles. Some of them, the, uh, the last book, Wilderness, I didn't come up with the title at all. I was going to call it Husky, which is the name of the dogs. And the editor of the books, a man called Arthur Levine, suggested Wilderness. He thought it was a much better title, and he was right. But I didn't come up with the title at all. The book I've just finished, I don't know what it's called. Don't have a name for it. Uh, the book that probably is the most famous of them, Paddy Clark, Ha Ha Ha, I, hadn't, I had finished the book, and my editor had read it before we had a title for it. And I had to come up with a title quickly because he wanted to put it in the catalogue for the following year, and he couldn't put up Book With No Name you know, unless you're going to call it that, uh, out in May or whatever it was, 1993. So I had to come up with a title really quickly. So I'm not, uh, sometimes, I, you know, I've just started a book for adults and I knew immediately, very early on, what, what I was going to call it. And I think it'll probably stay that. I won't tell you what it is yet, though. But uh, the other, the book, as I said, the book I finished, I've no name for it. I don't know. You know, and I've got a, you know, I might have a, I work on a laptop and I might have a file just called Book or novel, because I don't have a name for it. I don't have a title, you know. Luckily, I'm not as bad with my children. We got names for them pretty quickly. <laughs> so it's not like child one, child two, and child three, come in for your dinner. It's, um, it's a bit more personal than that. But book titles, funny. You would have thought that somebody with the imagination to write a book could come up with a title for them as well. Uh, the Snapper, my second book, which is quite well known, uh, it's, it's slang for a baby. And I remembered my brother talking about somebody having a snapper, but I couldn't remember the words, so I actually phoned him up, and after about half an hour, going through all the different slang words for baby, snapper came out, and ah, that's what I'm gonna call it. But the book was finished by the time I came up with that. And then I had to go back and put in the word snapper a couple of times, so it made sense. Uh, why did you say tennis was banned in Ireland? <laughs> <laughs> because I was hoping somebody would ask the question and get a laugh. I just say things now and again, and I'm not sure why. It just seems like one of the silly things that could get into a book somehow, that tennis is banned in Ireland. And particularly for people who've never been there, I like the, the idea that maybe they, think, maybe they think I'm serious, that if I move to Ireland, I won't be allowed to play tennis, or if I do play tennis, I'll be arrested and put in jail <laughs> for playing tennis. It's part of... Uh, Ireland, as you know, it, it's kind of a, an independent country of its own. And there are, there are Gaelic games which are very, very popular, hugely popular, hurling and Gaelic football and games like that. And really one of the reasons they were invented was to persuade Irish people to play their own sports and not play what were often called, or my grandfathers would have called, garrison games, games like tennis, rugby, soccer, that they said the British forced us to play. So I often just mess around and just say things like that. I don't play tennis myself, but it's not because I'm afraid that I'll be arrested and mind is because, um, well, I never did play tennis, but uh, anyway, if, you, if you're coming to Ireland, by all means, means bring your tennis racket. Which books are easier to write, adult books or children's books? I think in a way, adult books. When I'm writing for adults, I don't know who's going to read them. I don't think of any adult at all. I couldn't care less. Funnily enough, it's just me and the book, me and the page, so to speak, and I just write them as well as I can. But if somebody said, who reads them? I haven't a clue, you know, because you get this question now and again, what's your market? I haven't a clue whether it's men, women, Irish people, you know, people who just like books. I don't know. I really don't know. With children, 
I actually have to imagine the child, or I don't need to imagine because I have children of my own. But it's getting harder in a way because they're growing up. You know, I'm not writing a book for children for my 19-year-old son. You know, it just it doesn't exist, the book for children for my 19-year-old son. So it's, it's trickier because children, as you know, they, uh, they're very, very particular. They're brilliant critics. They know what they like and they know what they don't like. And what I love about them particularly is they don't mind telling you. Some adults would kill themselves before they'd say, I don't like your book. There are other adults who would kill themselves just for the opportunity to tell you they don't like their book, you know. But children are brilliant and that children, if it doesn't work, you know, I would often give my children a book, you know, or a chapter from a book. And they didn't have to say anything. I could tell whether they were enjoying it or not. Sometimes it was laughter. Sometimes if they paid, they stayed absolutely still, I knew they were enjoying it. But if they were anyway restless, or if I saw them reading one of the old vampire books instead of my books, I knew that I, I actually hadn't written it very well. So I wouldn't be angry with them, I'd be angry with myself, you know? So uh, it's very, I, I find it then it's harder to write for children because uh, say I start writing a book for my nine-year-old daughter, by the time it's finished she's 11 and she lives on a different planet if that makes sense. The things that used to make her laugh perhaps when she was nine, the things that used to engross her when she was nine, it's a long, long time ago and she doesn't want to know anymore. Does that make sense? So it's very, it's actually much harder writing for children in many ways, which is why in some ways it's a nicer satisfaction. Now if this was an audience of adults, I'd be saying the exact opposite thing. So don't trust me, okay? But yeah, children, children is harder. In, in some ways. Easier in other ways because the books are shorter. Or you, the books I've written are shorter. So that, in that way it's easy uh, because you, you can finish them quicker. But actually in terms of each word being very, very important, uh, the adult, the, the, the children's books do seem to be a bit harder. What book did you tend to find um, the hardest to write? Of the five I've written so far? Yeah. Uh, the last one, Wilderness. It was very hard because uh, I started it, as I said, and it, what, there was something I knew there was something wrong with it. It just wasn't working. But I kept on at it, and it wasn't sometimes, because sometimes the best thing to do is just to keep writing and gradually become stronger, and then you can go back and fix the mess that you beforehand. But it wasn't working. It just wasn't working. So I kind of had to decide whether I'd just abandon it altogether or kind of just start again. And nobody really likes starting again, particularly if you put months and months into it. So I started again, so, uh, it was, it, and, and I suppose concentrated more on it and had a firmer picture of the two boys and their mother and why they were on this holiday and made it a bit more uh, challenging, really. Uh, so it's not just about the boys and their mother. There's other things happening in the family as well. Tried to make it a bit more realistic, I suppose. But that was hard work. So I think that's probably the hardest of them to write. What's your favourite biscuit? I actually don't have a favourite biscuit. Uh, I don't really eat many biscuits, you know. So I don't really have a favourite biscuit. A disappointing answer. <laughs> but for once, I'm actually telling the truth. It is actually, I don't have a favourite biscuit. I, even when I, was, when I was your age, any biscuit that was near, that wasn't covered in fungus, was at that moment my favourite biscuit. 
if it wasn't, I didn't mind stale biscuits as long as they didn't try to crawl away before I got them. So, uh, but I don't have a favorite biscuit today or yesterday, or it's unlikely I'll have any in the future. It's one of the, uh, one of the, the, the I suppose the sadder parts of adulthood is that uh, you, you wave goodbye to biscuits in a way, or at least I did. And I don't miss them, I've got to say. Guinness is my favorite drink. <laughs> my all, uh, Guinness is my all-time favorite drink. <laughs> What's your best writing tip? My best writing tip? Actually, just do it, really. The writing is about partly, you know, the great ideas come into your head now and again. I brought a notebook with me. I usually bring a notebook with me when I leave home. And I brought up a notebook with me, but I've put nothing in it since I came here because I, no, no ideas have come into my head. So if I was sitting waiting for the ideas, I wouldn't be a writer, you know, because they don't, it doesn't work that way. The less glamorous part of it is that you have to sit at a desk or, you know, usually at a desk by yourself. And you have to do that for a long time. And that takes a bit of getting used to. It seems easy, but it's not. You have to do that, and you have to get into the discipline of just writing, just doing it. Instead of waiting for a great idea, you have to write the not-so-good ideas. And sometimes then, a better idea comes into your head. Does that make sense? But it's basically you have to sit and write. And uh, I'm in a position now, I've got this nice room, and I play music in the background when it fits and suits. And, you know, it's, it's my own little world. But when I started, I didn't have that luxury. I, I had a corner of the bedroom, you know, and uh, very thin walls of the neighbors are shouting and roaring and things like that. But gradually, you, it becomes easier to sit and to write. And one thing I would say is that don't be too fussy with yourself. You know, when you start writing, just write. You know, if, if, if it doesn't feel great, leave it and come back later and decide whether it's great. If you're working on a copybook, for example, write on every second or third line and leave loads of blank spaces so that you can add words later, you know? And it's always nice to finish a page and turn onto a new page. It's always a little achievement, you know? It's always, and the more pages you turn and fill, the less likely it is that you'll stop, you know? Because you're beginning to gather up pages and pages and pages. And I, I uh, do a bit of work with people slightly older than yourself. And some of them, I've been meeting them most Wednesdays, and one or two of them for a year and a half. And they've got this amount of pages. And one of the reasons they keep coming back is that they have this amount of pages, and they're not going to throw them away. You know, th so they're writing novels, fantasy novels. And they keep on adding to it. And by degrees then, by the time they're finished, they go back to what they did at the beginning. And they can judge it then because they haven't seen it in a year and a half. And some of it is brilliant and a lot of it isn't. And then they begin to put the red viral through it and begin to decide what's great and what isn't so great. But the, it's actually the sitting down and the writing. And be generous. You know, that, don't be too fussy. Don't expect the brilliant word every time. You know, you can change your mind and just fill pages, fill pages and leave loads of blank spaces because it's never finished until it's absolutely finished. Does that make sense? Great. Why did you want to make why did you want to make funny books? Funny books. Well, I'm always delighted when people laugh. You know, I'm sometimes surprised if I say something and people laugh. And I've said once or twice I've said things in deadly I've been really serious about saying them and people have laughed. So I'm not always, sometimes I'm aware that something I've written is funny. And other times, I just string these sentences together and somebody else tells me that they're funny. And I'm glad. And sometimes it's not right that the part of a book I'm writing 
shouldn't be funny. But it actually, if you have funny parts in a book, it sometimes makes the serious parts even more serious and more dramatic. So it's just the way I am, I suppose, really. My parents are very funny people, and my friends who I've been, I've been my closest friends I've known since I was 12, and they are very, very funny people. And if you, need, if you need to live in a funny country, Ireland is kind of funny, <laughs> you know? So it's part of the air I breathe, really, and my children are quite funny. In fact, they're very, very funny. So it, comes, it seems to come natural, really. So um, that's why I choose to write funny books. Because actually, when you put funniness, funny, something funny besides something sad, I think it makes the funny bits funnier and the sadder bits sadder. And that seems to me what life is all about in many ways. So yeah, uh, I just happen to, I always look for the funny side of things anyway, even at times when I shouldn't. But it, I suppose it's just a, a part of your personality that ends up in the books, so I'm glad I can do it. Why did Why you start to oh, write books? That one came in stereo. That <laughs> was like, who's first then? Me. Yep. Why did you start to write books? Because I love books. It's as simple as that. I love football, but I'm too old to be a referee. Uh, I love music, but I can't play. I love reading, and I gradually discovered that I could write. And it was a wonderful discovery to make. So I, I, love, I, I write books because I love reading. Simple as that. You know, I love it. And then there's yourself, yeah. Why did you give up being a teacher? Because <laughs> I did it for 14 years which is a long time. What age are you? Nine. So I did it for your life and five more years. So a lifetime and a half I did teaching for. And I was an English teacher, which I loved. But I also taught geography. And I didn't like that as much. I was a secondary school teacher. Because with English, it's always different. Because even if you're reading the same book, you're reading to 30 different people, and they all look at it differently. With geography, the River Shannon flows in the exact same way every year. Now, or at least it used to. It's more interesting now because it sort of expands and contracts and, you know, floods houses and stuff like that. But it didn't be, so before global warming, it was quite boring. It went the exact same way all the time. I'd like to be a geography teacher now. It's much more interesting. There used to be a place called. And so, but, so in the good years, I'd go back to work in September or late August and I'd get my timetable and in the good years, I was an English teacher with a bit of geography. But because a few geography teachers left in the late 80s or early 90s, and because the government wouldn't let the school get more teachers, I became a geography teacher with a little bit of English. And I was writing books that were being made into films. And when I went home, I was writing film scripts, I was writing plays, I was writing novels, and yet I was going in and teaching geography. And the River Shannon kept flowing this way. You know? So I decided uh, to give up. I didn't, uh, it was a hard decision to make because I really liked teaching and I still do a little bit of creative writing teaching with young people in Dublin uh, a few times a week and I really enjoy it. But, uh, so, because I, I, I just enjoy it. I find it really exciting. But I didn't want to do the teaching anymore. And uh, I was beginning to write more and more and more and my children had been born and I had as much free time as I used to. So I had to make my mind up whether to give up the writing or to give up the teaching. So it struck me as an easier decision to give up the teaching. Okay? But it, that was a decision I made 17 years ago. So it seems like a, the question came as a bit of a shock. It was as if I'd just done it last week. But, um, so that's the reason.
the River Shannon is to blame. Do you, yeah, write, do you write on a computer? Beg your pardon? Do you write on a computer? I do, straight onto a computer. I used to use handwriting, but my handwriting is so bad, really, really bad, actually disgraceful, that uh, there, there are often occasions when I can't read it. And uh, so I prefer working on a computer now. Yeah, I, I work straight onto a computer. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to read a little bit from the book I just finished. Okay, so uh, the book with no name. And uh, if there's time left, then I'll answer any more questions. Okay? All right? This book is about four uh, girls and women. The main character is a 12-year-old girl called Mary. Then there's her mother called Scarlet. Then there's her granny called Emer. And then there's her great-granny who's called Tansy, which is a kind of a shorter version of a name called Anastasia. And uh, the unusual thing about Tansy is that she died in 1928, so she's a ghost. But the four of them are in the story. And now and again, it goes backwards to when they were, old, when they were children or younger. And this is about Scarlett, the mother in the story, when she was younger, when she was about 14, and in a car with her parents on her way to her holidays in Wexford, which is, about, which is south of Dublin, where I'm from. So uh, I'll just read now. She hated it. And she refused to remember a time when she hadn't. Travelling with her parents, going places, anywhere, just made her want to vomit. Really vomit. She could feel it in her throat. She hated this. Are we there yet? said her mother. And her father laughed again. They were going to her mother's old house in Wexford. They did it every summer for two weeks and the day after Christmas for a few days. For as long as Scarlett could remember. And she hated it. She hated it now. She could tell. She could see it. Her parents were getting excited, like kids. Her mother leaned over in her seat and kissed her father. He turned and took his, hand, his eyes off the road so she, she could kiss him on the mouth. It was disgusting. <laughs> people like them, people that old and married, kissing like that, like they liked each other, fancied each other. She looked out the window, but it was all the same. Fields and trees, the Wicklow Mountains or something, at once on one side, nothing much on the other side. Her father was going bald. And her mother, lanky Emer, she should have been ashamed of herself. A woman her age, doing that, kissing whatever age she was. Ancient, 55 or something. Her mother had been over 40 when she'd had Scarlet, five years older than Scarlet's father. That was disgusting too. It was hot in the car, even with the windows open. Her father had lit another cigarette. Little specks of ash landed on Scarlet's arm, but she said nothing. She was hoping they'd forgotten she was there. They probably had, anyway, the way they kissed, right in front of her. Their own daughter. Her father was always more excited before they went. He'd be packing the car for days. He'd even put Bonzo, their dog, Scarlet's dog, into the back of the car a whole day before they were due to leave. This was a few years ago. He said it had been an accident that Bonzo had sneaked in when, they, when he wasn't looking, and it didn't really matter because Bonzo couldn't drive. Scarlett refused to remember laughing. She was positive she hadn't. Bonzo had died a few months ago. Old age, they said, the vet and her parents. He'd been older than Scarlett, who was 14. There was a shed in the back garden, and Scarlett had found them behind the shed, lying down with blood coming out of them. They'd made her go to school, and when she got home, Bonzo was gone. He'd been put down. It couldn't wait, her mother had said. You made me go to school. It was a mistake, said her mother. But when the vet said poor Bonzo was dying, I had to make the decision. Waiting would have been cruel. Scarlet love, I'm really sorry. You did it on purpose. 
Her mother had grown up on the farm. Death was nothing to her. Dead lambs, dead cattle, dead pups, sacks of dead kittens, dead crows. Scarlet had heard about them all. Her mother was crying now, but Scarlet didn't care. She got out of the kitchen, up to her room. She searched for the floor for Bonzo's hair. They promised her another dog. She said she didn't want one, that it was disgusting to even think about replacing Bonzo, as if he was a light bulb or something. She told them she'd never forgive them. She'd never let them forget. They'd killed her dog, her dog, without letting her say goodbye. They were coming into a town. It, she thought it was Arklow or some other dump. Her father had never been on a farm until he met her mother. He'd told Scarlet this loads of times because she'd asked him to tell her. She remembered that, how he went to the farm, nervous about meeting her mother's grandmother. She doesn't like the Dublin fellas at all, her mother had told him. She thinks Dublin fellas are nearly English. That's just thick, he said. What's wrong with being English? It's just the way she is, said Emer. Anyway, I'm not English. Asher, I know that. She just doesn't like Dublin. But she let you move there. Oh, she knew where the jobs were, said Emer. You don't have to like carrots, even though you know they're good for you. I do like carrots, said Jerry, Scarlet's future father. They're all right. I'm only saying, said Emer, Scarlet's future mother. This had happened in 1961, five years before Scarlet was born. They were on the train. Scarlet's brother was going to meet them at Enniscorty Station. Now, 14 years after Scarlet had been born, it was July 1980, they were heading back to Wexford in her dad's car. They were in Arklow now, going down its one crummy street, and the car was hardly moving. There was a tractor in front of them, crawling. How come every time I drive out of Dublin, I get stuck behind a bloody tractor? No one answered. It's the same tractor as well, said our dad, waiting to ambush me. Poor Jerry, poor bloody me. He, they were embarrassing. More ash was landing on her. She wished it hurt so she could scream. She really, really wanted to. She remembered her dad telling her about the first time he went to Wexford. Right, he said. Scarlet was sitting in beside him in his big chair. Where was I? So we got off the train in Istanbul. Dad, okay. We got off the train in Enniscorty. Which, by the way, has a lot more going for it than Istanbul, said her mother, who was sitting in her corner. Mammy, is there a strawberry fair in Istanbul, is there? Mammy, or a vinegar hill? Mammy! Okay, said her dad. We got off the train in Enniscorty. It was dark. It was, said her mother. It often is at night. <laughs> Your Uncle Jim, James the baby, was there waiting. A nice fella. He is a fine man. It's a mystery how he never found himself a woman. Mammy! Her father spoke over Dr. Scarlet's head to her mother. It took you a fair while to find yourself a man, missus, he said. And what a man I found, God love me. Ahem, said Scarlet. I'm here, cheeky as ever. Her father looked down at her. So anyway, he said, we got into your uncle's old Ford. I sat in the front, said her mother, because I'm taller than your dad and significantly older. So I needed the leg room. So anyway, said her dad, I got into the back because you're, like your mother said, I'm a bit of a leprechaun. I said no such thing. Well, actually, you did. When did I ever call you a leprechaun? The first time we met. I didn't. You bloody well did. When did I say that? At the match, said her father. At Croker, Croke Park, Dublin against Wexford, he told Scarlet. That's where I met your mother. And we won. Dublin did. You were lucky. I was standing on Hill 16, and I asked a tall woman standing in front of me to shift a bit so I could see the dubs trounce the bog men. She turned to me and said, don't listen to him. Why, she said, said Scarlet's father, are you some class of a leprechaun? I said it before I knew what I was saying. It's too late to apologize, I suppose. Scarlet, said her father. Have you ever heard the sound of 25,000 people laughing at you at the same time? No, 
It's a horrible experience, he said. Still, though, she t said her mother, you thought I was gorgeous. Well, that's true, he said. I've always had a thing about giraffes. <laughs> Can we get back to the story, please, said Scarlett. So anyway, said her dad, I threw our cases. I carried the cases, mind you. I threw them into the boot of Jim's jalopy and got into the back seat, all set to go. And Jim was in there already. He started the engine and we were rolling. Then the car door right beside me opened. I nearly fell out. There were no seat belts in those days. And a greyhound climbed in on top of me. I swear to God, and your mother started to scream because she hates greyhounds. God, I do. I hate them, hate them. Always hated them, everything about them. And another one crawled in after the first one. They were right on top of me. I wasn't sure if they were licking or biting me. Then something else was climbing in, and it was too fat to be a greyhound. Stop that, Jerry. It was great granny. That's right, said her dad. <laughs> it was your great grandmother, in all her glory, with another bloody greyhound. And the cup one of them was after winning at the dog track. A big silver thing that she knocked against the side of my head when she was climbing in. <laughs> Nearly knocked me out. I thought I was bleeding and the dogs would go mad with the smell of the blood. And your mother was still screaming and your uncle James the baby was whistling, your cheating heart. <laughs> that was his favourite all right. And the woman with the cup turns to me and says, you're the fella from Dublin. That's right. And what did you say? Scarlett asked, although she already knew the answer. I said, I think so. Why didn't you just say yes? Because there was a greyhound trying to take the wallet out of my inside pocket and another one chewing my tie and Emer's granny was more or less parked up on my lap and there was another dog whispering into my ear and your mother was still screaming so well I, I was a bit confused. <laughs> he stretched his legs but it was grand he said we were all pals by the time we got to the farm. You're not nearly a leprechaun dad said Scarlett. Oh I know that he said but let's face it your mother is a bit of a giraffe. <laughs> Scarlett looked at the giraffe now her mother lanky Emer. They were out of Arklow. Gory was next, she thought, and another crawl up a long, nothing town. Her mother was sitting up, leaning forward like she was pushing the car, trying to get there sooner, to the house she'd grown up in, the house with the straw roof where her granny had reared her because her mother had died of the flu. She'd walked into the house just after feeding the greyhounds. Scarlet knew all about it. She came in, her name was Tansy, and she picked up little Emer because she was crying because she'd dropped an egg, and they sat down in the big chair, and everything started to change. The certainties of her mother's life vanished right in front of her eyes. She watched her mother going up the stairs, and it was the last time she saw her. Scarlet knew all about it. I want the greyhound, she said. So that's it. Okay. Thank you. So I'm not sure, do we have any, do we have any more time? A few last questions, really hard ones now. When you were younger, did you want to be a writer when you grew up? Yes, when I was younger, I wanted to be a writer when I, when I grew up. And I still do want to be a writer when I grow up. I'm hoping that, you know, we all die eventually, but I'm hoping I'm really, really old and I'm leaning on my laptop and I'm halfway through a sentence and then... Doom. That's the way. I love being a writer. It's a great job. It really is a great job. Um, in the Giggler treatment, who's your favourite character? Rover, because although Rover seems like a dog, Rover is actually a Dublin man. It just happens to be furrier than the average Dublin man, but I feel close to Rover. I think Rover, I, I, I didn't have to, I grew up with Rovers, you know. My dad was a bit of a Rover and my friends are a bit of a Rover, and I suppose, you know, so it, it, again, it's back to that question earlier about the, the surprise is that dogs don't talk. So Rover is my favorite character. I like Rover. 
I think if I was ever, you know, going on holidays, I'd like Rover to come with me. It'd be great. I think it'd be good fun, you know? So, yeah, I like Rover. What are you to a dog's coat? I didn't hear that, sorry. What are you to a dog's coat? I didn't hear that, sorry. Oh, oh what are your dogs, dogs called? Yeah. The dogs are called Amy and uh, Casey. And they're uh, King Charles Spaniels. Mm -hmm. And one of them's a vet. <laughs> and the other works in a chemist. <laughs> What's your favourite joke? My favourite joke? Um, I can't think of one at the moment that I'd be able to tell you. <laughs> I'm trying to think of one. I heard one last night which was very funny, but I don't think I can tell it to you. It made me laugh. But I don't think I can tell it to you because I, I don't want to cause, at this point really, you know, we've been getting on really well for an hour and I don't want to cause any, any problems. So I can't think of my favourite joke at the moment. Can't think of one. Sorry to disappoint you. What do you want to write next? What do I want to write next? I, two things. I want to write a book for adults about men, middle-aged men who go to a rock festival. <laughs> and there's more to it than that, but basically that's what they do. And I want to write a book for children. I was in Palestine two years ago, and I found it really interesting but very upsetting because there's this huge wall that's designed to keep people apart. And I thought I'd like to write a book for children about children who live on opposite sides of the wall. And uh, it'd be a short book, it wouldn't be a very, very long book, and try to make it a funny book. Uh, but that's what I want to write next. But I haven't started it or planned it or anything like that yet. Um, I wish we could make him talk for hours and hours and hours more, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, Roddy is going to be signing books in the tent. Where are we? In the tent just behind where you are now. So if you want to meet him, get your book signed, do that. Before you go, please join me in thanking, first of all, Joe who's done the signing for us, and Roddy Doyle. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. And thank you, Daniel. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.